Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks, Jennifer. And I apologize for being online. I am sandwiched between a faculty meeting and teaching a class this afternoon. So I, I had to, to zoom in from my office. But I'm really, um, really pleased to introduce uh, Dr. Sims um, to GES. Um, Sam is uh, currently a lecturer and research associate at um, Harvard's John Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Uh, and he's also affiliated with Harvard's program in science, technology, and society at uh, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Um, he has a number of other affiliations, but I think what's really important about Sam um, is he's one of those scholars who kind of does everything. Um, he is a, a really thoughtful teacher. Um, he is a program builder. He's been involved in institutionalizing STS at UC Berkeley, at Tufts University, and at Harvard um, in really important ways. Um, he's a scholar. His areas of scholarship range from synthetic biology and gene drive to issues of science, technology, and security. Um, and he's also someone who's involved um, at the policy level in thinking about how we govern science. Um, he served on DARPA's uh, leader committee, um, which was a committee of social scientists and ethicists who partnered with DARPA to oversee some of the grants uh, that went out with the Safe Genes program. Um, and Sam played a really instrumental role in making sure that those conversations got to the kinds of issues that GES really cares about. Um, and the last thing I'll say about Sam is that he's an incredible soccer goalie. I met him at the Gordon Research. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that one of the first times I met you, you were wearing goalie gloves, Sam. Uh, but we met at the Gordon Research Conference on Science and Technology Policy over 10 the years last. ago. The <laughs> That's last right, one. the last one. Yeah. Um, and uh, and have, have been colleagues and friends ever since. Um, so many important projects. Um, and it's really great to have him here at GES. Um, so Sam, I'll turn it over to you. Um, thanks so much for being here in person. Thanks, Jason. And um, and and thanks to everybody both online and, and here. Uh, can everybody hear me okay online? Yeah, yes, no, somebody shake. Okay, great. You sound great. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, um, I've got some slides. I know we've got we've got like less than an hour here, and I want this to be a conversation as well. So I'm going to I'll, I'll go through my slides um, in a fairly kind of speedy fashion, and then open it up for for conversation with everybody. But to start off, for the people in the room here, um, raise your hand if you're an egg biofuse person. And for those for for those of you. Um, uh, if you think of yourself as having a discipline, what's your discipline? Yeah? I'm a plantologist. Uh-huh. So studying microbes across the DNA. Yeah. Okay. Sociology. A sociologist. Okay. Yeah. A stem cell engineer. Plant breeding and genetics. Molecular biologist. Okay. Interesting. Interesting, and and so that's that would that would be in, in a, a lot of situations be classified as a very interdisciplinary bunch of people, right? Um, but in some other settings, maybe not necessarily. I mean, we've got a sociologist if you want, if you're classifying yourself as such. But I also understand that each of you in this program are also taking classes that that go beyond these disciplines, right? In various ways, and 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 tread more into the social sciences and an SDS and things like that. So um, this crossover process and interfacing between what were traditionally thought of disciplines is largely what this talk is about. 
And um, it's, it's broken into three different buckets. Uh, one, I'll be talking a little bit about uh, the roles that, in particular, science and technology studies people take in, in trying to engage with and, and move along discussions on gene drives. Uh, and doing this as a part of a broader theoretical project within science and technology studies to, to rethink the relationship between science and society. And I'll give two brief, brief examples of iterations of trying to do that work, um, both in a, within a lab and, um, and at the national level with, with DARPA. So I went back and forth on how to, how to get into this uh, for everybody here. And I, um, I'm going to start with a little bit of theory and then kind of go into the practice rather than necessarily going, doing it the other way. But hopefully this will make sense on why I'm doing that and it won't be too dry. So Sheila Jasanoff, um, about a decade ago or so now, coined uh, the, this term of technologies of humility, which at first glance is a little, um, a little complicated uh, or doesn't necessarily make sense the first time you see it because it's not about like making gene drives a humble technology. The technologies that she's talking about here are the institutionalized, um, basically governance processes around science and technology. Um, and so the the point of a of a technology of humility is to create disciplined methods, so regularly um, practiced methods for compensating for the, the ways that scientific knowledge is always partial and incomplete when acting under irreducible uncertainty. And so again, the, this idea of partiality and uncertainty are really, are really key aspects of, of the concept of, of a technology of humility and the idea of disciplining it so that this is a regular process. She did this to contrast concepts of uh, technologies of hubris. So if we think of, of the ways that we have in our society to understand what kinds of ways science and technology are integrated into our lives and have an effect on our lives and on the environment, she's saying that, that a lot of those methods that we have are ones that um, take quite a hubristic stance on our ability to know and affect uh, the world. And the idea behind these is if, if we just know more and, and learn more and get smarter, we can figure out like the best way to, to govern science and technology. And so we have examples from, from, from Sheila's work on risk assessment, cost-benefit analysis, climate modeling, all have seeds of this, this sense of we just need to know more. And this is contrasting technologies of humility, which is, well, maybe we, we're never going to know enough. How do we still govern even in those moments and, and with those capabilities? Okay, so that's that's the idea of technology and humility. It's a high level kind of concept that that would shift significantly shift a lot of the the foundational kind of governing processes that we've got and for science and technology in our society. But how do you take that from a good idea and turn it into actual practice, actual work? Well, one way that that's been approached is by um, Jason Chilvers and, and Matthew Kearns uh, in, in England, who are saying a lot of a, a lot of um, 
these efforts center around broader engagement, trying to get more and different types of groups of people involved in the in the process and, and of science and in the governance of it. And in their work, they talk about four inter, they call them interdependent paths for remaking participation. Uh, there's a lot of words on here. I'm happy to share my slides afterwards, but but essentially one of these paths is about um, building in a capacity to ask questions about the assumptions that you're making about who should be involved and what the frame, the appropriate frame is to, to, um, to study or, or engage with or govern the particular area of science and technology you're, you're working on. One, if it, this one is like, what are the assumptions that are being made? This box is about what are, what are the things that are being left out? What are, what are we not attending to? Whose positions are we not highlighting and foregrounding in, in a particular process of, of participation and a particular process of governing? This box then moves up a level and says, well, um, so the, these two boxes are, okay, we, we conducted an experiment in participation. Um, what are we going to do? How are we going to do that better next time? That's, this is basically the idea that we need to be experimenting with the ways that we're making assumptions about who should be involved and what should be, um, what should be done in trying to open up uh, our attention and, and our inclusion into um, the, the making of science and technology and its innovation processes. And then the last pathway is to, to systematize that process of being experimental in how we engage publics, how we how we bring broader communities into the into the fold. Okay, so that's all the theory I'm going to give you. <laughs> um, why? Um, I, again, this is this is great, and and I think I think Jason and Matthew are really pushing a lot of of boundaries of of. The, the work that is being done on, on engagement with broader communities and, and feeding that, having that feedback into research design. Um, but how do you do it in practice? So I, if I were to say who I am, I, my first thing I'd probably say is I'm a, I'm a science and technology studies scholar. Um, I am uh, somebody who is really interested in these processes and, and trying to um, re-envision the ways that science and society are related and turn those and, and turn those into meaningful action within, you know, from, from undergraduate training to lab research to national and international policy and, and governance kind of systems. Well, what kinds of roles then do I find myself in, and do others find themselves in when they're when they're trying to make this make these changes happen? Andy Ballmer, Jane Calvert, Claire Maris, and and quite a few others uh, wrote a paper back in 2015 where they chronicled their experiences within synthetic biology of the roles that they were put into and, and or that they were able to take as they were. Um, as they were trying to engage with what was then, you know, early still emerging kind of synthetic biology as a as a field of, of study and work. Again, I'm not going to go through all of these, but what you can see is that some of them have quite a kind of derogatory uh, line to them, and some of them have a 
have what might be considered a more um, kind of productive lens to them. And uh, for, for those of us in STS that, that have been around the track a few times, all of these are very familiar. And, and th there are, when, when we're approaching a new group to, to do work with them, one of the first things that we do is we try to figure out, well, which bucket am I being put into that I then have to climb out of, right? So you, you first have to understand, okay, well, they're seeing me mainly as a trickster, as somebody who's just going to come in and be like, ha, I gotcha. Um, and, and I have to then work from there and say, okay, well, that's not actually what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, you know, we're trying to be, um, we're trying to be engaged much more substantially. But doing that, figuring out ways to do that is really um, something that has to be grounded in the particular people, personalities, context that, that we're finding ourselves in at this moment, so, which is why for the rest of my brief time here, um, I'm going to just outline the um, a couple of projects, and um, and then we can we can open it up for general conversation. I should also say I'm talking very much, and very fast. If you need me to slow down, or if you have questions, stop me. Um, this is your time. Okay. Um, I was going to spend a little while on the 2016 National Academies report, Gene Drives on the Horizon, but um, Jason was on the committee, and he can tell you all of the war stories from that himself. So if you're interested in that, I highly recommend that you look at it. I've got a paper that I'm working on about this, so you can also read about it more when that comes out. Um, but the, the point of each of these is that the, there have been iterations by this point in time in the gene drive conversation. If gene drive debates really got off in 2016, we're at the five year mark. Um, and, and there have been, um, there's been a cycle basically. So Gene Drive on the Horizons report was funded by DARPA um, and um, uh, the Gates Foundation, uh, but run through the National Academies. And one of the recommendations was let's create a forum for conversations about the broader questions that we've got about the relationship between gene drives and, and society and, and, and the environment the foundation for the National Institutes of Health took that into and, and created the Gene Convene Global Collaborative and the Gene Drive Research Forum, which I was actually kind of partially existing, I think before the report came out, but, but uh, they've got a virtual institute there where you can, so it's like an educational resource, but it's also um, a regular seminar series of conversations. Um, Yes, I can say more about that if, if you want me to later. The next one is, um, this is a research lab at MIT uh, run by Kevin Esvelt. And um, Kevin was one of the people who had the idea of combining CRISPR with, a gene, with the gene drive uh, system to, cre to create the ability to insert gene drives into, um, in theory, you know, any species that we want, um, mammalian, plants, or or otherwise, um, and I'm gonna. I'll talk a bit more about this. But the idea is that the the cycle here went from mice against ticks, which is a project on Martha's Vineyard off of Massachusetts, um, and then uh, cycled into the concept of responsive science, which was uh, kind of a subgroup that that I was largely running um, within that within that lab, mainly for the students, as a, as an as another experiment, another space to experiment. 
And then the last one is um, DARPA and their Safe Genes program, which is a, a, a again the program that funded that, and then and then is just wrapping up right now. Um, I served on the lead on the advisory board for them for that project, uh, and then uh, the it, next iteration of that was getting much more involved in one of the teams around a workshop to ask the question: Is it is it a good idea to maybe have a global registry of gene drive projects? Okay, I'm going to leave this one up for a while because there's a lot to unpack, um, even though there are very few words. Um, what I'm trying to do in this picture is to, to say, I'm, I'm taking here, this is kind of the role type that, that I showed you on roles that STS researchers might take in these projects. Here is a, a variation of the four pathways of remaking participation uh, from Childers and Kearns. And then I also added this extra one at the end on um, a feedback back into the research itself. Like, what? How did how did they change the projects that they were working on as a result of the types of engagements that that I was involved in? Um, and my color coding is is highly uh, well, not highly arbitrary, but um, it's my first pass at trying to think of, think of broad scales for for each of these. So. Green means basically that I saw a lot of room for, for be, having a productive role uh, for myself, and red means hardly any, hardly any room to, to have a productive role. So I, I put them in this order because it's it's more or less chronological, um, from left to right. In the mice against ticks project, um, I I worked with Kevin at the very beginning of that project to on a workshop we brought the idea was bring in a wide set of stakeholders and and others who might be interested in in the idea of a gene drive system on martha's vineyard and um and so from the beginning i think that there was a fair degree of of reflexivity about who should be involved and what this might be a problem of uh and that that was also a, a matter of attending to like the voices that were left out. Like, so the idea of, of even where do we want to be talking about potential application of a gene drive? Well, it might be ecologically, it might be useful to have on an island, same kind of conclusion that people here at NC State came to. Um, uh, politically, it would be helpful to have it somewhere that is that can speak back to the scientists. So if they raise a, if they raise a voice, that that they could make enough of independent noise on their own to shut the scientists down, even if it's a group from MIT. So we thought Martha's Vineyard kind of fit the bill with that. Um, initially, there was an idea that they would probably be fairly reluctant to to this uh, to the possibility of using the basic idea is edit mice with a gene drive, release them on the island as a way of addressing Lyme disease prevalence because mice are a reservoir for Lyme. Sorry, I should have said that earlier. Um, and uh, and I think that there was an ability to kind of iterate upon that because there were the regular conversations. There still are regular conversations on the island about um, about the about having um, having this option on the table or not. But uh, but in each of these, though, I was very much um, the kind of second fiddle in the in the project, and this is partly because 
it was not my main area of research at the time, and partly because it was um, uh, um, well, just the the dynamic, the personality dynamics in the project as well, right? So I put these all as yellow because they were. Um, it, it was much greater than a lot of other projects could have been in terms of the ability to ask more critical questions about the assumptions that we were making and have those then turn back into specific changes like, um, do we want to take DNA from another organism or just from a mouse and just shuffle the DNA around in mice, for example. Um, but the, the iteration, I'm going to move much faster because I only want to take another minute or two here. Um, the iteration, though, was after after working with the PI on a lot of these efforts, I was I was seeing my uh, my my voice kind of always be kind of uh, repositioned, if that if that makes sense. And and there were a bunch of students at that time who were becoming who were coming into work with this lab. Uh, because of the promise of being attuned to a lot of the social dynamics. Um, but they, they didn't feel like they, they had enough of an opportunity to actually explore those questions. And so I was like, well, let's just form a small group to, to explore those. And that turned into the Responsive Science Working Group that um, over the course of two years had this set of half dozen students or so really um, work through these questions as they were themselves going out to other potential field sites to, to see, well, what about something on the Virgin Islands or Hawaii or New Zealand? or and, and so we had a whole methodology that we were able to work up on. What kinds of questions should we be asking? How do you present yourself? How do you understand what the local communities are? What's the purpose of going to these sites? Is it to like convince them that gene drives are a good idea or is it to listen to them as to what the major issues are that they're dealing with in their local communities? And, and is a way of first understanding who they are and the, the social and cultural, let alone ecological dynamics on these sites. Um, I found that that was a lot better. Like I was able to make a lot more progress with, with, um, with attending to uh, the, the, the uncertainty and ambiguity around the science than I was uh, as a, as a kind of co-investigator co, uh, on the larger project. Okay, with DARPA, initially as, an, as a member of an advisory committee, I'm basically, um, I'm, uh, one, I'm under a non-disclosure agreement, so I can't say too much about the content of what I was working on there. Two, um, the, the process though is the advisors for the safety teams program um, were created before the program itself was formed. So the committee had a say in the structure of the funding call itself, which I think is really, really important. Um, and that's why this is orange. Um, but the degree to which that leads then to the ability to, it orange, sorry, orange and not red is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but the ability that that then leads to the, the makeups of the teams that actually get funded under these things is, um, is very much up to the pool of applicants that, that think that they, that they should be applying for DARPA money to get their, to do their work, right? As opposed to the National Institute for the Arts or 
National Institutes of Health or something like that. Um, if you want, again, more information about the, the work that went on um, in early stage DARPA stuff, I, I'm going to throw you over to Jason. Um, but, uh, but I found that my, my ability to actually impact the, the content of the program I came on halfway through the, the Safe Genes program, so I wasn't involved in the pre-funding call. And I found that my ability to actually have substantive ability to change the work that the program and the researchers were doing was very, very limited. I could be an advisor and be the kind of, I should have kept the roles up on one of these, I've got so many streams, um, uh, to, to be the critic, basically, but not really to be a kind of co-producer um, of knowledge. And so in this last round, I decided, you know what, I'm going to work with the team. And they wanted to do two workshops. Um, and the first workshop, which is already run, was this idea of should we have a global registry? And um, and initially, the idea was, how do we build a global registry for gene drive projects? And I very quickly said, well, hang on. If you have a global registry, like, what is going to be in that registry and who's going to maintain it? And so th these are these are really fundamental questions because you can say, well, what should be in the registry, for example, is a risk assessment of the acceptability of a gene of, of a particular project. Well, okay, but like who's doing the risk assessment? We, you know, I'm, not, I'm going to go point out that risk assessments are highly structured on the idea that we can have enough knowledge in order to make a decision but I don't think that we can necessarily make a decision based on just a risk assessment. It's always going to be a whole bunch of other factors that come into play. So what else needs to be in this registry? And from there, I then turn the discussion again to a, well, but maybe the point of a registry isn't so much having the information in it. It's the discussions that go on around what constitutes acceptable information to have in the registry. Right, because those discussions are are then if you get into those discussions, then you then you get into well, why is one why does one person see this as the acceptable types of information around like local um, you know local political structures or something like that, and another person would say no, that's that's very much not the type of information that needs to be in this registry. Well. Okay, so then, then you have that discussion, you go up another level and you say, well, what is the problem that you're trying to address? Well, I'm trying to address the, the political intransient of, my, of the local community to, to do anything um, about the diseases that were occurring in this, in this community. Well, I'm trying to like, uh, you know, get a Nobel Prize for being the first person to have a successful gene drive or, you know, I mean, it's not that crass, right, on either side. But, but, the, but the idea is that there are radically different framings of what it is that you're trying to do. And, and that those framings of, of what the issue is then structure epistemically the knowledge that's deemed to be relevant and valuable in order to make a decision on whether you go forward with that, that project. And that, those, those sets of knowledges, the point of the workshop, from my perspective, was to get people to see that those sets of knowledges are, are in competition with each other and are contrasting each other quite substantially. So that they're that in order to see one frame and, and understand the knowledge system in which that makes sense, you kind of have to not see 
and a different, you know, the other, the other framing. So it's, it's really hard to get those, those groups um, arguing with each other on the specific pieces of, of evidence that you might want in a registry in order to make a decision. Whereas if the registry is about actually being a forum for negotiating between these competing framings, then, then the, the registry can have these different information schemas for different framings. But the, the, the ability to have a joint um, conversation about well, what kinds of, what kinds of decision-making structures do we think are legitimate let alone like whether those the, the content of those decision-making structures about gene drives in particular. Okay, um, it was a workshop, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is, a registry does not exist. Maybe it will never exist. Um, it was it was one version of experiment, but with our feedback loops, does it does it go back into actual research? Like that takes a lot more conversations, right? But the ability for us to open up and have those kinds of, to have both have the kinds of debates at that level, and then for us to step back at the end of the workshop and show everybody that those were the debates that we were having, and why, like why the conversation needed to be at this higher level of abstraction, while still being tied to specific empirical data, when when you get to different within different frameworks, I think was the was the point. That's all I'm gonna. Um, I'm going to pause here for questions. Um, I can go into more detail in any of these, but I want to just um, hand it over to general conversation now. Excuse me, sounds good. Can everyone online hear me? If you have your, just give me a thumbs up if you can. Okay. Um, first, Darren, um, do we need to stop sharing Sam's screen oh, so we can get the, so you can see everyone? Okay, and then also if you're online, and if you turn on your video, then we can see you in the room a little bit better. Um, and then that way it'll feel more engaging. And while everyone is doing that, I think. Um, Dalton, you had a question in the chat. So if you could unmute and ask that question, um, we'll get started there. Sure, sounds good. Um, you're online and have a question, also uh, feel free to use the raise your hand function. Great, so everyone can hear me, right? Yes. Very yep. strange to see myself screen and screen and another screen um, <laughs> on Don's computer there. Um, so um, Dr. Weiss Evans, thank you so much for that talk. Um, really engaging, really um, valuable to hear about your direct experiences um, as part of these projects. And my question kind of has to do with that. I was wondering if you could, um, say more about um, what it meant to act as a knowledge co-producer um, in your roles on these projects, because that is that, that has been a really key question and discussion for, um, I think, Ag Biofuse students. Um, it's an ongoing discussion that we've come up with a lot of different answers to, um, but uh, it would be interesting to hear um, your response to, you know, what I would, it I would love. I would like. love. Thanks for the question, Dalton. But I'd love for you to just say one more sentence about what what's an example for you of a of a co-producer or a way that you found to to go about that. Um, I'd say from a very simple perspective, uh, 
one element of being a co-producer is the ability to um, perform research projects and actually produce uh, a deliverable. So for us in cohort one, that's um, that comes in the form of publications based off of our cohort project. Um, so in that context, I think that's what it, that's what kind of means to act as acknowledged co-producer. But in other contexts, um, from a more community grounded based perspective, it could mean, you know, the what is produced within, you know, on the ground decision making structures between the interactions of um, experts and non-experts alike, um, just as a very general way of stating it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, so one of one example that I've used in the past is um, uh, well on the on the gene drive registry one. Since I've already given that example, it's it, the the statement is uh, you know that that I think people were asking different questions about a gene drive registry um, and its value at the end of the workshop than they were at the beginning. And for me, that's a that that is that is a process of, of co-production. Because again, co-production here, I'm understanding it in an STS lens where the, the co and the co-production are political orders or social orders and knowledge orders. So that if you work within a particular, um, within a particular um, social or political system of ordering people, you're also gonna be ordering, and, and society, you're gonna be ordering what knowledge is valid and legitimate and useful um, in, in order to join those up. So that, that co in a co-production process is, is what I mean by, by co-production. And, and the producing there, the reason that the, the registry is an example of that is because uh, people came in thinking that the registry was a particular way of ordering people and as well as ordering knowledge. Of you know deciding okay well you know where should the registry live like should it live within Imperial College London or should it live with you know at the UN or within a, a local communities or you know whatever and and whose knowledge should go in it are all parts of conversations about well, who has the power to make the decisions in these in, in these cases and um, and what knowledge is is relevant so. That's one example. Another example, though, at the, at the very opposite end, is in the um, on the mice against ticks project. I, I mentioned very briefly this, this idea of, of using DNA from another organism or just within mice. And um, at one point in the development of the project, I heard the Kevin Esfeld's presentations very much shift to say we're not we're only using 100% mouse. It, like the, the, the modified organisms will be 100% mouse. And I was like, well, that's a very interesting claim that you think needs to be made. Like, why, why is it that we think that that claim needs to be made? And the answer was, well, because that's what the people have said. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. Like, what constitutes people saying that 100% mouse is the thing? And... Um, and I decided that this was a point that I needed to dive down into more. Um, and as I kept on kind of pushing on it, I, they eventually said, well, it was at this meeting um, on Martha's Vineyard, a town hall or like a, a town hall discussion about, about my skin's ticks. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. 
just so happens we have videos of all of the meetings. So let's go back to the video and and look it up. And I I don't want to pull it up here. It's about it's about a couple of minutes clip. But um, uh, Kevin is is kind of talking about the value of democracy and 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 town hall decision making and et cetera et cetera. And then he says, um, okay, well, so who here? Like, and just in the course of his sentence is basically saying, okay, all right, well, let's just, let's just ask, you know, like who here um, would want us to um, alter the, um, I haven't watched this clip enough time to get the very specific wording correct, <laughs> but it was like, who here would want us to alter mice to be um, resistant to just the Lyme vaccine? And then you can, you can kind of only see a part of the audience as well. Um, and then who here wants to, to do it for all vaccines? And then somebody in the audience shouts, well, what about getting rid of the deer? And I was like, well, that's a different question. And there are the whole politics around that like statement coming from the audience. And then, and then um, Sam Telford, another scientist next to him says, well, what about not doing anything at all? And he's like, oh yeah, like who wants us to do nothing at all? And, and nobody raises their hand. And then, and, and Kevin says, well, I'm kind of shocked. Because I, I thought I thought that we need we need to have a few more critics in, in the audience, and then and then it cuts to somebody in the, in the audience taking the mic, and and so by the way the the question about 100% mouse has just happened. Did you notice where it happened? I'll come back to that in a second. Somebody comes up, a member of the audience grabs the mic and says, um, "Whenever that happens, whenever you have no opposition at all." To like to to the work that you're doing, you have to really seriously consider like who's in the room and what's what is being talked about, and and then that's uh, that's where I cut the clip, right? So so this this video was was uh, given to me as evidence of 100% mouse, uh, and by by other members of the team. So I went and watched the video, and I was like, I don't. I don't actually see the 100% mouse like statement here anywhere, nor do I see any kind of sense of what anybody on that town would call a democratic process of decision-making that this was the thing that they wanted. And then through a series of emails, it was like, oh no, it was a conversation after with a science journalist who doesn't live on the islands, who I was just talking with. And, 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 then, and then he thought that that might be a good idea. And so we started pitching it and that's kind of where it came from. And I was like, so the people said, <laughs> right? But 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 then the the idea was. So he was like, okay. So we need to go back then and have like make sure that we explicitly bring this up as a point of debate and future and the next set of conversations. Like, do we want one hundred percent mouse or not? But again, it's all about framing. It's like, would you like your mouse to be one hundred percent mouse? Are you okay with it being eighty percent? And maybe some other slug genes or something. Um, and that has a huge play in how things are played out. So anyway, that was a very long answer to the question of co-production. So the, 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 the very bottom level was I was di diving down and to looking at the ways that knowledge was formed as a way of questioning the claims to enabling democratic ordering within the research community by saying, by, by them saying, okay, we're going to shift our research to be 100% mouse now um, as a result of the community having spoken. And I wanted to question that. 
even though, even as much as I want that to be true, like the community spoke and the research changed, my job here is to, is to, is to ask what it means for that to have occurred. That was very long. I'll make my other answers shorter. And by the way, Patty put up the uh, Kevin F. Fox talk to the August 2017 Nantucket Town Hall link for people to be able to see that. Just so you know. Yeah, well, that was, that was Nantucket, I think. Whereas this is Martha's Vineyard. And there was another quip in this, in this clip that I've got about, about well, it would be di totally different if we were doing this on Nantucket because they only have one town, you know, one board, whereas Martha's Vineyard had six, like six different towns that all have to agree. Anyway. Yeah, um, thanks, Sam. It was really nice to hear such complicated and complex issues just talked about so elegantly. Um, this builds off of Dalton's question about co-production a little bit. But going back to your color grid, um, so I think about like the role of an STS scholar in engagement and think about co-production as being this sort of lofty goal. It's like, you know, kind of the one of the biggest goals we may have in that role. Um, but I also look at the sort of um, mosaic of color, like it's sort of run the gamut from, I think, green to orange, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there was one red in there. Um, even more, like even more of a range than I remember. Um, so there's sort of that. And then there's this idea of just being a sort of critic, which is sort of poking holes and not always the most productive participant. But there you're consistently yellow, yeah. which isn't terrible. Um, so can you speak to that sort of unevenness of impact yeah, yeah. and what you think, like, what do you think about that? So I think relationship? That, that's very helpful. Thank you for the question, because I, I think that um, there should not be a hierarchy of these roles. Um, I think next time I give this talk, I might, I might take Balmer's et al's kind of uh, tapestry of different roles and put them into more kind of actor categories and, and, and STS like categories that we would labels, we would, might put on ourselves and labels that are put on us. Um, because I think for the, the labels that we put on us, I think that there is room and need for people to be in all of those roles. There is, there is a time and a place for being the critic or even the trickster, or, you know, um, and, and there's a time and place for, for being the colleague, being a long-term person who may not be working on the same thing, but is always there to kind of banter off with, or, or the, the co-producer. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't to put those in a hierarchy. Um, it was, it was, uh, the, the purpose of that graph for me was trying to get to grips with, um, with the ability to change the um, the ways that people are making and, and are making the, the science that they're doing and the governance processes that they're establishing. So I, I was very much positioning my my goal as being a co-producer and, and, a, and a colleague and, a, um, and, and those kinds of roles. But that isn't to say that those other roles aren't also really valuable and and important. And indeed, when I teach science and engineering students, like I, I, um, I often have a whole section of whatever my course is on the different ways that you can be in relation to science and technology studies. So, like you can be an STS scholar or researcher. You can be 
somebody who has an STS friend. <laughs> you could be a you could be an ally of the field. You know, you can be you can be a um, somebody who doesn't who, who knows what they don't know, right? You know, and and knows at least that certain questions are not being asked and probably should be. And like maybe this is a moment to pause. And all of all of those roles and more are ones that that need to be attended to because it, there's no point the world would would get nothing done if everybody was everybody was STS. And um, and the 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 world well you can already see what's going on in the world as a result of not attending to these broader questions about the relationship between science and society over the last hundred, two hundred, four hundred years. Um, so yes, more of all of them. Um, yes. Um, so did you, for these like different aspects of that graph, um, did you have a different, what did you want to be in those roles? Like, were you trying to be the critic versus the educator versus the co-producer? Did you have a personal goal in each of those moments? And then was the critic how you were, you thought you were being perceived? Thanks. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'd say it's a, uh, in each of these cases, it was a matter of trying to, trying to understand what kinds of roles I could occupy, which ones would then uh, have the most beneficial impact to the group that I'm engaged with, and which ones um, are ones that I could I could manage with the time and resources that I had, right? For a lot of the Mice Against Tick work, as I think I said, I was that was unfunded work for me. I was never on a grant for it. It was always a second or a third kind of level project in terms of my work portfolio. And so I wasn't able to give it a lot of the attention that I wanted, even though I knew it could be desperately done. And actually for the first several years, I was talking to Jason and others to try and, and, and say somebody like I need a graduate student. <laughs> like I need somebody who can who can be on the ground with this group on a regular basis that I can then interface with, and other people can then interface with. Um, uh, because I can't do I can't be there all the time. But it, it's it's definitely work that needed to be done. It just never anybody nobody really ever took that that role. So that role went empty of of like the person on the ground that was the colleague basically. Mm -hmm. And, and I didn't have the capability, you know, or the, I, I didn't have the capability really to be the, to be more than a critic. Mm -hmm. And, and so it was a, you know, but, but as well, like the, the dynamics of the group were such that um, I don't know that I ever would have been a co-producer mm -hmm. at that kind of level. Jennifer Kuzma has a question. Jennifer, would you like to ask it out loud? Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Sam. Sorry, I can't be there in person, but I look forward okay. to talking with you later um, today. So I, my question was actually already answered. One of, one of the points I was going to make was it better to take on some of these less desirable roles and agree to participate in an activity or to take a stand and say, hey, no, I'm not going to. And I think you answered that already in the sense that all of these roles can be valuable. Because um, I know I've been asked to participate in some DARPA activities and I've said mm -hmm. no, because it seems like upfront that that's the, the more engaged role like co-producer or reflexivity, we're not going to be a part of that. So is it sometimes valuable to take a stand and say no? And, and you know, we're not going to um, participate or is it better to always participate and 
be the, you know, nagging spouse or <laughs> what have you, you know, the trickster or what have you. Um, so that's the first, but I think you answered that to a certain degree in Katie's, um, in the remarks to Katie's point as well. Um, so, so then my follow-up to that question would be, what kind of strategies do you have, practical strategies to switch your role in between, yeah, like okay. in midstream? Like you see you're taking on the trickster, but you really want to be the co-producer. Do you have any practical strategies or advice you can give us for switching your role? That's so, so helpful, Jennifer. Thank you. Um, but I will just say one more point about answering the first question a little further, which is that I have incentive structures for my career as well that I that I need to be meeting. And so the questions on whether I say yes or no to certain things are also very much about, well, who do I want to be crafting myself as? And that directly relates to the, you know, I, I said no to being part of Kevin's team when they applied to the DARPA initially. Because A, I didn't feel comfortable about, I, I didn't know enough about DARPA's work trying to trying to structure the an open space for like I was I think I was probably exactly the type of person they were hoping would be on one of these teams but I didn't know that and so I didn't be on the team like it, that was part of one of my reasons for not being on the team right you know, so so there was that breakdown there but also I didn't want to be an engagement scholar like I I right at that time I was really building up my biosecurity um, work which I haven't talked about at all here. Um, and I wanted to be seen first as a security governance, you know, STS and security scholar, and second as somebody who works on engagement and early stage research and that kind of thing. And that this project would have been such a, such a defining kind of decision for positioning me in that other label that I, I decided not to take it for that reason as well. And on answering the question about how we switch roles. Um, I mean, I can go all the way back to the Synthetic Biology Engineering Research Center, which I was technically a PI on, but if you look at the, like, the archive website, I've been completely written off of it. Um, I was, uh, there's a whole bunch of history here I do not need to get into. Um, I came in after a big blow up between the lead anthropologist and, and the lead scientist on the project and, and the anthropologist exited and there was a vacuum that I kind of walked into. And um, I thought, well, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do here meaningfully. Like these, these projects and teams, I, I'm not a known entity to most of them. I'm not gonna be engaging, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to meaningfully change their research. So what do I do? So I engaged, I, I engaged in some, I, I looked for opportunities where they stood. And one of those was playing around with uh, forms for funding projects. Like what, what do you get people to answer when they have to apply for money for, to do synthetic biology research? And, I, and, I, and so I played the role of a funder, like trying to find different ways to get these people that wanted money to, to answer questions about how they would think more broadly about their work in a way that then led them to actually thinking more broadly about their work. And I played around with that for, for a little while. With the responsive science stuff, it was a, it, the, the shift came when I recognized that the students in the lab wanted more training that they couldn't get in the lab. And, and that training students, 
is a very good way to change systems because it takes five or 10 years for those students, if they've got ways of thinking that they've been trained in, employ those ways of thinking when they get into tight spots. And it's those tight spots that are where the governance decisions get made. And so if I've, if I've been able to at least get them to, to ask a couple of, of questions about the relationship between their work and the wider world, the hope is that, you know, when my students, you know, one of them now is at Ginkgo, for example, working on like the government relations at Ginkgo. And like, I still talk with her on a regular basis. And, and she's like, yeah, that, that was a really, really helpful period because it gave me the skill set to like understand how to interface the, the, the work that the sciences are trying to do with, with our, our, our visibility on the government side. And so I take that as a win, right? You know, I, I take that as I found, a, I found a place where I was able to pivot in the process of engaging with this group um, and take on a different role. Like I moved from the critic to the educator, uh, but and as a result, um, to kind of achieve my, my larger goals of trying to figure out how to build these technologies of humility, which is why I started off to talk with the theory work. Cause I, that's, that's where I'm going with all of these projects is try, try and make these much grander shifts, but doing so at the student level, at the researcher level, at the governance, you know, the regulator, the policymaker level, and, and more at the societal level. But you got to work at all of them at the same time, depending on where the, where the, uh, where the soft spots are at the moment. <laughs> Maybe have time for one quick question. Um, I hope this is helpful. I could go on talking about all this stuff. Oh, yeah, forever, no, this so. has really been fascinating. Um, we have about three minutes until one. So um, there's a question. Oh, there is a question online? There was from Eli, but. Oh, Eli had a statement that was just. Let's do online. Oh, okay, um, all right, all right. It, it wasn't actually a question. Okay. So uh, my question is uh, I guess, like, uh, I think everyone could benefit from this. What are some um, foundational readings or like things that everyone could potentially read um, that might help us learn more about like tech of humility or like ease us into that concept and more like concepts like that? Yeah. Okay. Well, so there's a, there there are several ways of getting into this. One, um, like uh, take more STS courses. <laughs> I advocate for the university to, to fund the ability for you to get more graduate STS training. Maybe I'll put that plug in. Um, uh, I put up references in my slides. Like I said, I'm happy to share the slides and you guys can have those there for the technology, the humility, the remaking participation stuff. Um, but those, those pieces are also themselves in conversation with the STS community um, uh, and, and a long tradition about public understanding of science, efforts at participation and engagement and the like. And, and, um, and you can follow the reference trail for some of those. I would also though very, very strongly recommend the Handbook on Science and Technology Studies. So the handbook is, is, is reissued every five to 10 years or so. And the latest handbook has uh, two chapters um, on participation, one by Gary Downing uh, and somebody else, I forget, and one by Javier Luzon and, uh, and a couple of other people, I think. Um, and they're, they're, they're about both the um, engaging with communities and like in, in 
like so research projects that try to engage with broader communities and STS people that try to engage with the subjects, the, the groups that they study. And, and so that they the chapters need to be kind of read together in a sense, even though they're not meant to be, but like they weren't initially designed to be, but they need to be read together to kind of parse out those differences. But it, that also, the point of those is to give you a sense of the landscape of the field circa 2016. So. I think it's a really great point to end on uh, places where we can go for more. <laughs> um, so I want to thank everyone for coming in person and joining us online. And um, Don put a reminder in the chat, but uh, next week we will be hearing from Dr. Denise Kostich, who is a retired senior scientist and head of the Mays Germplasm Bank at Simit. And she will be in person. So if you'd like to um, come to this room, PO 202, you're welcome to do so. Um, and with that, if everyone can just help me thank Sam once again, and thank you. See you next week. Thank you.